Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. If you are not creating content outside of a newsletter that people are resonating with and people want to listen to and hear, then just changing the media isn't going to change any of that. And so I recommend people try to start building those followings in these kind of much lower stakes environments where you can tweet and see what kind of tweets get responses, what type of tone and content and advice people react to and respond to, because that will give you the signals that you're onto something and that you have something worth sharing that people want to hear about. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Marketing Millennials. Today, I have the Beehive team with me, EJ, Tyler, and Daniel. I want to get kicked off. What is Beehive and how did Beehive come about? And then we'll go into the topic of the day. So Beehive is a newsletter platform to help content creators and businesses create, monetize, and scale their newsletter. As far as how it got started, I was previously the second employee back at Morning Brew and so built a lot of the internal tech there, the website, the newsletter, the referral program, the ad management platform, which unlocked a ton of potential. A lot of people familiar with Morning Brew knows that Business Newsletter daily scaled the three and a half, four million, got acquired by Business Insider. So like one of those newsletter success stories and Being where I was in that position and seeing what it took to build a successful newsletter, what data we collected, what tools we needed, uh, just led itself to building a platform that helped other content creators take advantage of those same tools to build a newsletter themselves. It definitely was a need in the market. And I think especially when five years ago, I mean, creators weren't really the thing. It was more Morning Brew, which is had its own tone, special tones, but it wasn't really that creator facing. Now we're moving into more of a people are following people era. Um, So it's definitely hit at the right time where everybody started creating a newsletter now and sharing their ideas. So that's pretty cool. I want to go into what makes a great newsletter. What are the elements that go in that? For me, like I always emphasize content. I think with the platform, with Beehive, for example, and other platforms and growth tools, a lot of people get obsessed with the KPIs and the metrics of how fast am I growing? What tools am I using? What incentives am I offering to grow quicker? And how much money am I making? Which is all great and flashy for Twitter and people love seeing that. But at the end of the day, if the newsletter actually isn't good content that's providing value to an audience, whoever your audience may be, then you have a very leaky bucket of acquisition and people churning or like you don't have real loyalty that you can build upon and launch future products and communities. So I'd say content for whatever that means to whoever your target audience is, is like first and foremost, the most important thing to nail. It's why at Morning Brew, whenever we spun up a new vertical, we would actually spend weeks doing a Google Doc sample newsletter internally to the team and just criticizing every little part of it to ensure that the content really hit before launching it into the wild. Simply put, it's an extension of knowledge share. It's an evolution of the way that we communicate 
what's in our head. You know, it's been books in the past. Before that, it was tablets and hieroglyphics. We've always had some method to communicate knowledge. Uh, the other day, I was just curious how many books there are. So I Googled how many books are there. And the number that Google said was 129,864,000 books, which is wild and probably even still underselling how many books are total. So when I think about newsletters, right, you walk into a library and there's books lining shelves, lining rooms, lining the walls everywhere. And there are book sections and there are book themes and there are dozens, if not hundreds of books that write about more or less the same thing. But it's that author who has their own unique perspective. I think the same goes for newsletters. I think it's the unique perspective that's the extension of someone's voice. It's how they communicate what they know, their opinion, their philosophy, their ideologies, and now in a way that's accessible to everyone, wherever they might be. Yeah, it's tough to go third because there's only so many ways to say content is key, but I will try to take it a little bit slightly you know, different nuance. One of the things that we hear a lot from folks, uh, you know, who are just starting out or who may have you know never been on Twitter or built a following on any social media platform is they look at you know these publishers who are doing quite well with their newsletters and you know say how can I get started? This person already had a following and of course their newsletter is doing great, but I have no following. Like how do I grow? And the thing is, it's a little bit uh, in that way it comes back to content in that. You know, there's a cart and there's a horse. And if you are not creating content outside of a newsletter that people are resonating with and people want to listen to and hear, then just changing the media isn't going to change any of that. And so I recommend people try to start building those followings in these kind of much lower stakes environments where you can tweet and see what kind of tweets get responses, what type of tone and content and advice people react to and respond to, because that will give you the signals that you're onto something and that you have something worth sharing that people want to hear about. It all comes back down to this model, you know, that's not too dissimilar from a startup of product market fit, where you have your tone, you have your subject matter, you have your even stuff like your sending cadence, your design, and all of these things kind of come to play together with your audience, which is a totally different variable. And when all of these things start to click, you have a very similar product market fit as with a startup. And so if you're just starting out, the key is just to be experimenting and uh, doing customer discovery, the same sort of exercises that you do when you're launching a startup to really find that niche where your audience is really gelling with your content, your tone, your design, all of that sort of stuff. And once you start to grow organically, once people start sharing it with their friends, sharing it you know, in the wild, you kind of know, okay, I've kind of captured something that can grow some legs and then you can double down from there. One thing I, I love that you said is starting on social media. I think the hardest thing about newsletters is getting direct feedback from the audience of, is this good? Is this bad? But social media is a great way to get quick insights. Do they like this topic? Do they not like this topic? Is this going to resonate with my audience? Is it not going to resonate? Obviously, you can tell a little bit in a a newsletter by is open rates dropping? Are people still clicking? Are people still around surviving in this newsletter? But most of the time, just because they're opening and stuff like that doesn't mean they're necessarily loving your newsletter or loving the topic that you're doing. So I think that's a great insight. I wanted to go a little further. And I know you said content is key for a great newsletter, but 
what are elements of good content? What is good content? Because I think when you're starting a newsletter, someone might say, what I'm putting out in my head is great. Why aren't people liking it? So what 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 is good content? It probably varies per newsletter and who your target audience is like the obvious answer that no one wants to hear. So if your target audience is people who work at hedge funds and it's just purely informative, it probably doesn't need to be funny filled with memes and gifs to communicate value. It just needs to be able to deliver what your audience wants, which in that specific use case is deal flow, fundraising, whatever. If your audience is interested in TikTok trends and social media, then you probably lean in and provide more entertainment. So I think it's kind of like a varying range between entertainment and information, depending on who your audience is. It's like one of those questions of like, it varies. And it really, there's like such a wide range of newsletters providing different types of value to different types of audiences that have a catch-all of what is good content is like a very difficult question to answer as a catch-all. Um, but there's like indicators that you can get. So as you mentioned, like there's open rate, there's click-through rate, there's unsubscribe rate. We offer like a polling feature so you can get real-time feedback on if people and readers liked the newsletter, didn't like the newsletter, hated the newsletter. A lot of our users use that feature to get tactical real-time feedback. And we actually see it promoted on Twitter a good bit where people will say that they drop like a satisfaction survey at the bottom of all their newsletters for the past three months. And their first one was like 80% of people thought it was like, okay. And they kept listening to feedback and tweaking it. And then after X period of time, they actually saw like noticeable uptick in the satisfaction survey. Of course, there's like survey bias and everything else, but we've seen actually many examples of that, which I think is pretty interesting. So that's kind of like a big, it depends. And our job is to provide the tools and insights to help you identify what is good content for your audience. I think the next evolution of this is, okay, I start a newsletter. My content is great to whatever audience I have right now. What are some tactics to grow the newsletter? How do I invest in making sure that more and more people are coming back to read this newsletter or, and then more and more net new are coming in. Yeah. It's always difficult when there's three people over here on this side. So I, I'll jump in and, and let someone fill in the dots. The way that I do it would be you create your content, you send it out. The lowest hanging fruit for you is to use your distribution channels that you already have. So Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, whatever, like whatever channel you have, you create content, you already put the work in, you've already amassed an audience on these other social media channels, regardless of how large or small that audience is. So you might as well just repost your content and drive people like, hey, today I covered this. And you never know who in your audience already has an interest in that similar topic and they'll click through, they'll read it. Ideally, you can convert them to subscribers. We have features when you do drive that traffic, where you can collect subscribers like pop-up boxes. If it's a little bit more catchy, you can have like an email gate, which means they can't read anything without putting their email in. Um, So it's kind of like clickbait in a way. Um, But that's like another way to drive. And that's just like to maximize your existing audience. When you already have an audience of readers, we have a referral program similar to the Morning Brews referral program that worked really well. And that's built into our newsletter. So you can incentivize your existing readers to share with other net new people and get rewards, whether it's community access, more content, t-shirts, swag, whatever. 
beyond that, there's like the classic paid acquisition channel. So if depending on your size and budget, you can invest in Google ads, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. Um, those are like a few of like the low hanging fruits, but we also have a boost network, which allows you to promote your newsletter to other newsletters within our beehive network. So you can say, I'm willing to spend $2 per subscriber and every beehive user sees that offer. They can opt in to promote your newsletter and they would receive the $2 for sending you a subscriber. So it's like the network effects of what we have built to help facilitate on one side newsletters to grow quicker at their own budget that they set. And on the flip side, newsletters to make money passively from driving subscribers to newsletters that they're recommending. And so that's one of our cooler, more successful features that we've launched. I could probably talk for the rest of the podcast about different growth mechanisms for a newsletter. Um, there's like SEO, which I'm sure EJ can hit on. Um, and we like handle a lot of like the SEO best practices. So passively you create content, ideally search indexes pick up on it and that drives traffic. And then when you couple that with the pop-up and the email gating and everything else that I mentioned, it really just becomes what I think people want is a silver bullet of how do I get to a million subscribers as quickly as possible. In reality, it is seven to eight different things. Some of the ones that I just mentioned that all work together and start to compound over time. So your first hundred subscribers are the hardest you'll ever get. But then you start to use all of these different features and mechanisms and get better at what you're doing. And they all start to compound over time. I think what's evolved in the last few years from newsletters, which was just an email sent to an inbox to what they are now, I think really is like omni-channel marketing in a way. Instead of one specific send to one specific inbox, it's social media with a website, with a podcast, with video, with written content, with SEO, with analytics, with all these different tools that some of which Tyler alluded to, I think creating the newsletter or transforming the newsletter from one uh, very linear piece of content to a media vertical. And that's what we're seeing more and more large newsletters do is turn their email newsletter into a, a content empire. Uh, I know EJ, of course, is kind of the man behind the scenes doing that for Beehive as, as a SaaS company. So I think he probably has a lot more to share on this, but that would be kind of my two cents. I think it's omni-channel marketing. It's content growth laterally. What Tyler said at the very end there about it, not there not being one silver bullet. It's like if I put it into two buckets, it's like great content. And then like those various different methods of really reaching your user where they're going to be found. So, you know, if you're running a traditional newsletter on something like MailChimp, where it's just like very straightforward, you're just one to many, there's no or kind of minimal web component your opportunities to then be discovered are also kind of limited. You can't really share that on social media. You can't have it discovered by folks searching for related terms in the search engine, you know, like with SEO. It's much harder for folks to to share that newsletter. Like as a, you know, millennial, uh, and I don't know if I can speak for Gen Z, but like I've never received somebody forwarding me an email. Like if people want to see something, they're going to send it to me as a link on Instagram or or text. And so facilitating those kind of, you know, motions are are really key to growing. And so what it really comes down to for me, this is kind of the the marketer in me, is really understanding your audience. Where do they spend time online? Like what are their habits? Uh, like Tyler said, if you have uh, you know, hedge fund folks, their interactions with each other and with content are going to be very, very different than um, for example, like my former intern who just spends all his time on YouTube, you know, and consumes all this content there. So 
it's just, you know, understanding where the, your users are going to be found, whether it's on Reddit or Twitter or, you know, maybe not online. And, you know, in today's world, uh, it's hard to imagine people not being online. But, you know, there are some groups where, you know, being in person could be better. I don't have any examples of that. But yeah, it's just understanding that audience and understanding how they're they're naturally going to interact with it. And our goal with Beehive is to facilitate all of these use cases. Yes, we can be that traditional newsletter that people are going to interact with one to one, you know, one to many. Um, you can forward it and we have ways that you can subscribe that way. But if you want to build out your content archive so that when somebody searches for marketing millennial tactics, then, you know, you could have your newsletter show up for that, you know, search. And maybe it's not in addition of the newsletter that shows up on the web page, but it's a article that is on your web archive that then, you know, links people to subscribe to your newsletter. Um, you know, in today's world with everything so connected, there is no such thing as kind of a an isolated channel. Everything is connected. And that that's kind of the through line that that leads with everything. We can facilitate ads, we facilitate SEO experiences, social experiences, email experiences, you know, really just allowing users to show up and consume that content in whichever form that they are most comfortable. The insight about millennials like sharing emails is true. I don't think I've ever got one email from someone that said this newsletter is great. I've probably got a link shared to me or a screenshot of an excerpt in a newsletter or it was shared on Instagram story. So I don't think I've ever got that forwarded. But I definitely know my mom and my uncles are sharing emails to me and saying, yeah, this is a great email. You should read it. Um, so it also depends on demographic and stuff like that. And knowing who your demographic is going to help you be able to know how to share that. I think the next, the next evolution. Okay. So I'm writing good content. I'm, I'm marketing it. I'm either marketing on social or I have good SEO or I'm paying to play. When do I know it's the right time for me to make money off of this. Day one with Beehive boosts from literally day one, you can monetize. And there's no reason you shouldn't. That's the better answer because a lot of my answers, if you have more than two subscribers and haven't made money, you're doing it wrong. No, <laughs> <laughs> I always tell people that you should just visualize what the number of people is. Like if you have 25 people that's now like a classroom at a private school if you're now 100 people now you're a lecture hall now you're a thousand you're now starting to get to a keynote speech then the next stage is filling up stadiums and all that stuff so if you visualize that it becomes more and more enticing to do that because it'd be cool to give a keynote to a thousand people every single send that's what a thousand subscribers is basically um so yeah that's like what the managing editor at Morning Brew, Neil, would always say is like, this is the coolest job in the world. I type up something and press a button and it goes to 5 million people. And like, that's like a crazy amount of people to be able to contact at once. I'd say like historically, so you can break it down probably into like the different ways to monetize. When you go the advertising route, historically, to answer your question, there was like a threshold. And the answer was also, it depends, but there was still a threshold. So if you were broad market, trying to target people interested in sports or business or finance, then like you toss out the number like 10,000, 25,000 subscribers is large enough where you can then have an advertiser interested in saying, I want to pay you money to get in front of your 25,000 subscribers who are interested in business or sports. And again, that's like in the 
the olden days before last week when we launched an ad network where you actually had to go out and sell your newsletter audience to an advertiser to entice them. So just like if you imagine put yourself in the shoes of a advertiser, a marketer at a D2C company, if a newsletter comes to you with 5,000 subscribers, that probably doesn't get you out of bed and probably isn't getting you a promotion. So you're probably not interested. Whereas if Morning Brew came to you and said, we have 3 million people who have disposable income that are interested in your product based on data that we've collected, would you want to advertise to 3 million people at once? The answer is probably yes, which is why size has been a prohibiting factor previously for monetizing. So for the ad-based, yes, there's typically like a 10 to 20,000-ish. That's like enough to get an advertiser out of bed to get excited about advertising in your newsletter. With the BI of Ad Network, it's different, right? You opt in. We have the long tail. You can be 500 subscribers large, and we can still dish you advertisements. So I'd say with the launch of our ad network, that threshold of when can I start monetizing on the ad side has definitely gone down considerably. So that's on advertisements. For premium subscriptions, I think the answer is what EJ said. It's like day one, right? If you launch a newsletter that is free and then you have an upsell paid version that provides more insight, more content, inside scoops, whatever your value proposition is, there's no reason on day one where you can't offer a $10, $20 a month tier where you launch a newsletter and you have people paying you monthly subscriptions from the day that you launched. So there isn't like a time constraint on being able to monetize a newsletter from the premium subscription side. And then there's like the everything else affiliate, which is also from day one. And so that's like the Beehive Boost feature where you can promote other newsletters in our network. You're getting five subscribers a day. Maybe that's not like a massive number to you, but if two of those five people opt into another newsletter that you're promoting and both are spending or paying you $3 per subscriber, you're making $6 a day off of the five subscribers that you're acquiring a day. So I'd say with platforms like ours and like the tools and everything else, there's a lot of opportunities to move that what was a, you have to grind and hustle and build up an audience to 20,000 plus people, which could take a year, could take two years to bring the time to monetization almost to zero. One question also is that, cause I, I, I saw you guys launch the ad network and which congrats on that. How do people determine what the CPM or the cost of monetization should be for a newsletter. Does your ad network do that for them or is there, could they set their own price for what they want their CPM to be? It'll eventually get much more complex than it is now, given that we're in like our first week post-launch. We will do CPM, we'll do CPC, we'll do CPA. We'll have like a pretty wide range of monetization opportunities on the ad front. Right now, we're primarily focused on CPC. So brands come to us, they have a target goal of conversions or clicks that they want of traffic driven to their website for whatever product that they're selling. We go to our publishers and offer them a $2 CPC or $2.50 CPC. So it's primarily performance driven. The publisher gets paid out depending on how many unique clicks they drive to the advertiser's website. We give them a three to four day window to accumulate clicks they get paid out like 30 days later. The evolution of that would be to also offer more brand awareness deals, so CPM-based. So we would go to the publisher and say, here's an advertiser with a $40 CPM for every thousand unique opens that you have on your newsletter and on your website, you'll get paid 40 bucks. Um, we can do CPA once we launch a pixel as well. 
Um, so some combination of all of those is what's coming. And then also for the more premium newsletters who are like, I understand that you're offering a $2 CPC, but my audience has a very high disposable income. They're decision makers in large like B2B SaaS companies. I think to get in front of this audience, it should be like an $80 CPM minimum. And being able to kind of input as the publisher what year going rates are and us being able to help facilitate that is a further evolution of where we're going. But everything is kind of a trade-off with convenience. Like in this case, like you don't have to do any work and we are providing you ad opportunities where you're making money without a sales team, without a copywriting team, without a finance team. And that's the value prop now. And that'll continue to evolve. I think people underestimate how hard it is to be a creator doing all that type of stuff. Because I remember when I first started creating... I just had a podcast and I had to go sell it myself. I had to go edit it myself. I had to go do everything myself. And then I had to worry about how I'm getting paid and everything like that. I think a platform like Beehive is great for people, for most creators who don't want to do a lot of the admin stuff that people. I mean, want to say do. that you have a newsletter about yoga and you think a dream advertiser would be Lululemon and Aloe Yoga. So you're growing your subscriber base. Maybe you get 10, 15,000 subscribers. Who do you even go to contact at Lululemon or Aloe to sponsor your newsletter? So now you're spending hours a week on LinkedIn trying to find second and third connections of people who know the marketing manager at Lululemon. Then finally, you get in contact with Lululemon and the marketing manager is like, okay, you have 15,000 people who are generally interested in yoga. Do you know the gender breakdown? Do you know their age? Do you know their disposable income? And for most content creators who just want to write about yoga and wellness, they probably don't know the answer to those questions. So now you don't have the data. You've just spent weeks trying to get in contact with the right person. And then like, let's say you do have the data. Do you have any idea how to price that properly or do the copywriting or write an ad that's going to convert? And then say you've done all of this. It's been months now. You run the ad for Lululemon. You now have to do the proper reporting, make sure all the clicks were legit. There's no bots. There's no spam. You need to be able to do the reporting. You need to invoice Lululemon for however much they owe you for running that ad. And then you need to rinse, wash, repeat that 15 more times for every other ad that you want to run in your newsletter. And so that really is the value prop of the Beehive ad network is allowing someone who is passionate about wellness and yoga and whatever to be able to focus on creating good content where we could do the meticulous process of everything that I just described and allow them to monetize and make a living off of this. And they just focus on their core interests. It sounds like a dream for most creators who don't have a lot of time. And a lot of creators are that I know are actually doing the thing in real life. So like you there probably are a yoga teacher that is teaching 30, 40 hours a week, and then they're writing a newsletter and then they're doing other stuff like, People usually follow people with expertise. I think there are probably more creators with newsletters who aren't full-time newsletter creators than there are full-time newsletter creators. And so the norm is that someone is exactly like who you just described. They're a full-time worker or a full-time something with a newsletter. And a newsletter is one aspect or portion of their larger creation ecosystem. And so to tell them, yeah, on top of the, let's say, 10, 15 hours a week you spend creating this newsletter, I don't know, it's just, you know, pulling that out of thin air. You also have to spend 
five to 10 hours doing outbound sales for sponsorship. You have to spend five to 10 hours doing actual invoicing and operations to make sure you get paid and make sure your invoices go out at the right time. And it's just a nightmare. And so I, as you do too, as well, Daniel, I think we all know people who are hiring people full-time and part-time to manage all of this for them, which becomes extremely costly on top of all the different costs and revenue considerations for your media vertical itself. One thing I want to go into, and it might be a a little bit of a touchy subject, but I saw that um, you guys weren't ranked by ConvertKit <laughs> as the top 13 newsletters. Um, could you tell Wait, me why? Really? <laughs> um, could you tell me what they got wrong on that and what they actually got right in that article <laughs> that they put out? Yeah. Tyler, <laughs> take it away. I mean, I guess to set the context there, it was an SEO piece of people searching like best newsletter platforms for deliverability. And so as a growth strategy, which we do similar things to a less, a much less slighted way um, and disrespectful way, we try to educate people who search common search terms of what's the best newsletter platform for growth or how do I monetize my newsletter? And the strategy there is to create blog content that's very useful for anyone, regardless of what platform you're on, to learn about how to monetize, how to grow. And then ideally, it showcases some content creators on Beehive who are having success using these features. Thus, it's lead generation for us to grow. So classic SEO marketing. What ConvertKit did was, I guess they were honing in on the keywords of like deliverability, top newsletter platforms. They happened to name everyone in the industry and their mother but us, but we got an honorable mention at the bottom. Uh, which was really kind of them. And then in our 22-month journey, the one mishap that we had where we did something like infrastructure-wise that impacted some users and their deliverability for two to three weeks, obviously people are sensitive about that and they post to Twitter. Um, so ConvertKit was nice enough to go out of their way and do the research for us. They, were, they found the tweets of these seven angry users for this Six one mishap. <laughs> They screenshotted it and then added it at the bottom as an honorable mention of why some platforms don't have great deliverability, Beehive being the only one we're going to mention in this article. So it's kind of the backstory there, just SEO marketing, where you can take many directions with that. Like we try to educate our users. So for our SEO marketing strategy, it's very much agnostic of what platform you're on. How can we help and provide as much value and information to you as someone searching for an answer online? And ideally, because we provided you great value, you trust us and you want to use our platform, even if it isn't a hard sell in the article. Other platforms choose to go a little bit more aggressive and shit talk competitors, which isn't the way that we do things, but that's kind of a personal and, and corporate decision on their end. As a, from the marketing perspective, just to just to kind of set the record straight, they publish deliverability metrics every month, I think it is. And somebody was like, "Well, if you guys have such great deliverability, you know, why don't you publish?" I'm just asking questions. You know, it's, we're totally happy to share our metrics, and they're identical. They're within you know less than one percent of what ConvertKids does. So, just you know, anybody who's listening out there is saying, you know well, what are what is your deliverability? It's literally identical. We use the same inf- sending infrastructure, the same sending vendor, SendGrid. There is literally no difference. That's not me just hyperbolically saying there's no difference. There literally is no difference in deliverability. Individual deliver, individual senders, you know, you're, have different 
deliverability rates, but in terms of the email getting to the inbox, it's literally the same. And if I could speak off the hip for two seconds, I think just as an overarching general statement, very few people actually understand infrastructurally how deliverability works of let's say there's 10,000 people who understand how to build newsletters in the world. Maybe like 30 of them actually understand how newsletter deliverability works. And so if you're someone looking at platforms and asking about deliverability, that's fine. You should ask those questions, but know that very few people get it. And we happen to have our own internal deliverability and compliance team who gets it. And we work very regularly day in and day out internally and with external teams with our deliverability ESP uh, to make sure that metrics stay high and that we actually do know the answers to your deliverability questions. That said, still very few people in the ecosystem actually understand how it works. That being said, it does give us a good Q4 goal. We're trying to become one of the top 13 newsletter platforms in Q4. So we will be working tirelessly to achieve that. One thing I was going to add about I was going to add about that, like, I mean, I've been in SaaS marketing for a lot of time and the best way to do things with competitors from a consumer point of view is admit your own flaws up front and then just like hype up why you're better. So you kind of just like be honest, kind of like a waiter in a restaurant saying, don't get the chicken. It's kind of sucks. Get the steak. That's kind of what you should do with like those type of articles, putting your... Sometimes putting yourself as number one is not very believable in that. And that I know it's good for SEO, but like if someone's landing on a convert kit page or whatever, at, at least pay a third party blog to rank you number one. Don't don't have your URL blog post put you as number one. I've like looked through a lot of our blogs and make sure we try to avoid that at all costs because it's like the most cringeworthy thing possible. I actually flagged one of ours like six months ago and said, hey, let's make sure we're objective here. And I think we do our due diligence to make sure that our content on our blog is objective and is is read through a lens that's actually helpful regardless of what platform you're on. I might get in trouble for this, but I was talking with people who were saying, hey, like, what did they say so wrong? It's like, hey, you did have this one mishap six months ago. They're just stating the facts of like what's wrong. And the truth is like there are some use cases where ConvertKit might be a better platform for your business. If you have very heavy e-com focus, that's at this point in time in September of 2023 might be a better choice depending on your specific needs. But rather than going that direction, it's like a total thing. But we're happy to talk to people. Someone's on the phone with Daniel. I've been on the phone with people. They have a use case that doesn't fit what our platform is. We will tell them that and we will point them in the right direction for what's going to best serve them. We are here purely to serve users in the best way possible. And for newsletters, we believe there is no better place for your newsletter. But if there is a better place for whatever use case you have that may not strictly be newsletters, we're going to tell you, we're going to help you out and we're going to give you that truth. And we're going to, even if it doesn't necessarily help us in the, in the short run. I told someone to go to Clavio. Yeah, and that's the best way to avoid churn as well. Like as a platform, it's like that's because Daniel just bought a bunch of Clavio stock <laughs> on the IPO. He's like, yeah, if you're not, well, no, 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 no. I was gonna say, I, I was gonna say, I told him to go to Clavio, and they still came to Beehive. <laughs> but yeah, there's 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 instances where people are better fit. I mean, someone asked me, do you do SMS? It's like, well, no, we don't do SMS. Again, this other case, they also came to Beehive because 
at the end of the day, sometimes features that you think you need aren't features you actually need. But in the cases, and there are many of them, that they are features you need and we don't happen to provide them. I mean, we're not necessarily trying to be the email marketing platform right now. We'll get there. I think we'll have automations that set us as best in class apart from all the different platforms available for email and newsletters. But, you know, we've been here for 22 months and I think we've made a statement about being one of the most competitive, if not the most competitive newsletter platforms available right now. What is a marketing hill you would die on? I'm sure I have a lot. I'm an incredibly opinionated marketer, very judgmental of like the flash in the pan, like things. I'm trying to think of a specific example. Very lightheartedly, I will die on the uh, GIF versus GIF thing. It's like, to me, it's GIF all the way, which is kind of not really marketing, but kind of marketing, which kind of puts Tyler and I at odds sometimes. A hill I'll die on, and I believe it's uh, what we can show the last 12 months, 24 months of our growth is that things that don't scale are ultimately what cause you to scale more rapidly than everyone else. So every single day for a year for me, two years for Tyler, almost two years for EJ, we'll get on social and we'll respond and reply and interact with the many hundreds of mentions that Beehive gets. We have conversations with people, we hop on calls, we troubleshoot, we sell when we're asked to sell. We give objective opinions when we're asked for those. We could automate all this with a robot. We choose not to because it's not personal. And so I think doing things that don't scale is how you scale most effectively. Yeah. Anybody who's out there who, if you mentioned Beehive or one of like seven different misspellings of Beehive, I will see the tweet. I see every single one. And if I don't like it, then I'll let you draw your own conclusions because <laughs> I see every single one. Um, that spurs for me what has led, I think, to our success within kind of my dimension uh, leading growth is, you know, I've always been a very, very analytics focused person. I think that Tyler is the guy who kind of gets what will inspire people and get people excited and, and get people, you know, to take an impulsive action, you know, with marketing. He's got a great marketing mind in that way, you know, for copy and for design and for visuals and just kind of the traditional abstract side of marketing. And I've never been that type of marketer because I rely much more heavily, kind of more deeply in the analytics where if I can measure interactions, if I can measure even the most minute thing, I can always say, okay, ad version A is better than ad version B because we can, you know, we have the data and that's, that's led to success um, in my career. And it's one of the things that um, I think works really well with Beehive because not only do we do that for our own growth purposes, but for our consumers, you know, you basically have a world-class growth team in your corner, building in these very, very sophisticated features in your newsletter that with just a little bit of time and watching a couple of tutorials, you can set up and really leverage and stand on the shoulders of giants. That's definitely a growth marketer answer. So that was great. I love that. A lot of opinionated thoughts have come to my mind in the past five minutes. So I'll just rattle off a few. One, I think I kind of alluded to with like newsletter growth, but there is no silver bullet. Like it is like a lot of different things you need to do really well. We have an SEO effort. We have a social strategy. We have a landing page effort. We have a lead gen effort. We have like a boots on the ground effort. Like there's a lot of things happening in conjunction and behind the scenes that are all helping us swim in the same direction. But there's not a single like, let's bet the house on this strategy in Q4 because that's how we're going to win. So I think there's no silver bullet, which is what most people in life and businesses look for. I think what Daniel alluded to is like, 
just giving a shit is how I have been able to classify it broadly. But like responding to people on set, like emails on Saturdays in the trenches, like on social media, responding to everyone, providing feedback, trying to help people. Like, I think it really shows when you have a team that cares more than the competitors in the space and cares more genuinely and not with a sale in mind always, but actually trying to help people, I think goes a long way. Copywriting, I'm super opinionated on. So I've done a lot of the copywriting for the landing pages and websites that we have for the emails that go out. I hate like the hustle culture, put a space in between every word, like sell it. Like it's like the most dramatic, like self-help course. Like I think that couldn't be more of a turnoff to me personally. And so I think really nailing copywriting and making sure it's consistent to your voice and brand across social, across ads, across your landing page, across your transactional emails is extremely important. And then lastly, I'd say showing people why something matters and what value they would get out of it versus how something works is extremely effective. And so we launch a few dozen features every week or so. And it's one thing to say like, hey, you can now toggle this on and this is now something you can customize. And it's cool and it's true, but that's not what moves the needle. It's being able to communicate why someone should give a shit that they can now toggle that on and customize this. And so it's now you can create a custom landing page that has a lead gen form that kicks off an automation, which allows you to grow faster and make more money. And I think being able to tie all of those together is really difficult. And some companies and marketers focus more on either too much on the emotional or too much on the functional without the full picture of being able to tie someone with a compelling story, being able to explain the functionality of it, but also the third piece of like why it matters for them. And it's like those three in, in conjunction that actually get someone to convert or trust you or take an interest. He asked you for a hill to die on and he gave him an entire mountain range. I mean, that's okay. A lot of If you have multiple hills, it's good. I think you should stand, have an opinion and stand on it. Um, the last thing I want to go over is where people could find each one of you and where could they find Beehive? So I always, we have to specify the Beehive spelling is not correct. Uh, we'll say intentionally, but B-E-E-H-I-I-V dot com so that's the website you can find us on twitter tiktok instagram at beehive for all of those and then individually probably most active on twitter so dank d-e-n-k underscore tweets is the handle well i guess they're not tweets anymore so i'm gonna have to update that we're also on linkedin i know marketing millennials very active on linkedin we are also active on linkedin all of us personally and then our beehive account as well EJ underscore Beehive. This is the Twitter account. I'm working on my follower account. I'm Daniel C. Burke. My Twitter account is the most interesting of the three of us. Just kidding. It's the most idiotic. <laughs> I just want fake news. Fake news and advice in real estate in Charleston. <laughs> Anyone in your audience who did a line or is curious about like how we have grown or like what has worked, what hasn't, I think the easiest way to see that in real time unfolding is following any of us on any of these platforms because one, I think we do a good job of doing what we say and promoting different users. We're testing a bunch of different growth and acquisition strategies in real time. We're also like fully into like the build in public. So we launched this campaign. We thought it would do this. It ended up doing that. Here are the results. Here's the data. Here's what we're testing next time. 
I think we're pretty transparent and open about how we're building the business. And so anyone who finds that stuff interesting, which I would assume most people listening to this podcast would, we're a walking live case study of that. Well, yeah, you, I think you all do a great job in building in public. Um, I think it's a good testament. One of the few companies that have multiple people posting insightful things on, I can only name like probably three others in my head that do it well, but, but thank you so much for joining. This has been great. Um, and if you're looking at, if you're starting a newsletter, Beehive is definitely a great platform to check it out. Not one of the top 13, but we are an honorable <laughs> mention. So well, I'll have, I have to start according to ConvertKit. If you go look at ConvertKit, what they do. They're number one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, no. We're going to see that now. We're going to we're gonna get that clip just like uh, <laughs> Tyler's got to be like a politician. You know, it's like they censor themselves in real time because they, they know people are just going to take that little, little, little clip. This <laughs> message is brought to you by Tyler Dank. It's going to be in a, the next blog post. <laughs> That, I think that's the thumbnail <laughs> episode. Tyler Dank, CEO Beehive. <laughs> Kid is number one. I love it. Well, thank you thank so you. much. Um, it's been great. Yep, take it easy. See ya. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.